Would you turn with me to Colossians uh, chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse uh, 1 to 4 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. As you turn there, you know, with Father's Day coming up, I had been uh, thinking this week just about um, challenges. Y'all ever get into, like, a situation in your life where you're like, whatever it is, you're like, man, I'm going to crush this thing. Like, I'm just going to kill it. I'm going to come in. I'm going to step into this situation. I'm going to step into this thing, and I am just, man, I'm going to rock it. Only to get into it and find out I made a big mistake. I have no idea what I am doing, and, like, I need to back out and go through some training or something because I just, I, I, I jacked this one up. Y'all ever do that? Just me? Can I, can I be honest and tell y'all what that is for me? Fatherhood. <laughs> y'all, I went into this thing thinking, I'm just going to crush it. I am going to be like the best dad. I am going to set the example for other fathers. I'm just going to, I'm going to crush the dad thing, man. Like before Hudson was born, this was before I had kids, right? Uh, and uh, then nine years ago, out comes this little thing with no instruction manual that does nothing but cry and poop. And I'm, I, that's when I realize I messed up. <laughs> like, I have no idea what I am doing. And it took me down this, this path of like, you know, I thought I was pretty good. I have this high aptitude, but y'all, I felt lost. Like, I have no idea what's going on, and I felt for a long time like I had failed that dad's standard that's out there. Like, I just don't measure up. Y'all ever, maybe it's not fatherhood. Y'all ever step into a situation like that, though? Like, oops, I, I, ain't, I ain't matching up to what the standard is on this thing. Let me ask you about this. How about your relationship with God? After you got saved... Along this journey of the Christian life, have you ever gotten into it and like, I am screwing up royally. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how to hold myself to God. I don't know how to meet God's standard, and I totally feel like I am failing the standard that God has for me. Y'all ever feel, is it just me? Anybody else amen in that one in the room? Y'all like, I, I, sometimes I just feel like, how am I a pastor? I'm just a mess up. Lord, I can't hold myself to you. The real question we're asking when we, when we cry out with those things is, how do I hold myself in relationship to God? How do I do it? God, I put my faith in Christ, right? Like, like I hit that starting line. How do I now hold myself to you and live in right relationship with you? That's what we're trying to figure out the rest of the Christian life. And for you and me, luckily, Paul gives us the answer in our text. And this is what Paul is going to tell us. Christ holds you in right relationship to God, not you. So pursue Jesus, not your religious practice. You see, because you can do nothing to hold yourself in right relationship with God. Only Christ can do that for you. And what Paul is going to tell us in Colossians is just pursue Christ then. Pursue him to hold you in that relationship. If you have your Bible with you and it's open, go ahead and look with me at Colossians 3, 1 to 4. God's Word says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, 
at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we have the privilege of studying your word this morning. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our minds, help us to understand your word. Holy Spirit, I pray, would you open our hearts to to invite your word into it, to change who we are. And I pray, God, would you affect our hands that we would leave this place ready to apply your word in our everyday lives. God, let your word change our minds and our hearts and our hands this morning as we pursue you in it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is what Paul says, hold fast to Christ. Christ holds you in right relationship to God, not you. Therefore, pursue Christ and not your religious practice. And so in making this argument, the first thing that Paul starts out with, look there at verse 1 with me again. The first thing he says is, if then you have been raised with Christ. Go just that far. You see, in all of the New Testament, there are only two places where Paul uses this specific phrase or where the New Testament even speaks to it. Usually when New Testament writers point to us being raised to new life, it's in the final resurrection when Christ returns and takes us home to be with him. It's a future resurrection that we look forward to. But here Paul is saying, if then you have been raised. And he's saying it's not something you're waiting for. It's something that's already there for you now. And what we see just in this short little section of verse 1 is that our new life is wholly bound up with Christ's resurrected life. You see, once we place our faith in Christ, we are given new life in him. And that new life in him is wholly bound up in his resurrected state. When we uh, walked through chapter 1 of Colossians, I had, we'd walked through what Paul said where um, if Christ stayed dead, then death still reigns. I don't expect you all remember that. That was like two months ago when we got to that one. But if Christ stayed dead, then death still reigns. If Christ didn't have power over the grave, then sin still reigns because he was not powerful enough to conquer death. But the fact that Christ went to the cross and died and went to the tomb, but three days later the story proved it wasn't over and he resurrected back to life, now it proves that he has power over sin and death. Because he has power over sin and death, his resurrected life is where our new lives are wholly bound up. And so when we ask the question, how do we hold fast to God? How do, we, how do we hold in right relationship to him? It starts with, in this context, like, what does it look like to live the Christian life? So where our mind would go, what does it look like to live the Christian life? You see, back in, in the Colossians day, there were several answers to that question. You see, the Colossian church was founded by Epaphras, and then Paul wrote back because there were people starting to speak into the life of the Colossian church to tell them, it's great that you started with Jesus. It's great that you, you're saved and you put your faith in him, but let me tell you, that's not the whole formula. Now to live rightly before God, you got to do a couple of things. You see, the Greeks would have told them, hey, you need knowledge. And you need this, this secret knowledge, right? You need, you need this secret knowledge that only we can tell you. And as you grow in this secret revelation of God, it's not available in anything that's been written. It's, it's this secret revelation that we've got. And once you know that, now you're drawing near to God. Now you're living in right relationship. Now you and God have a good thing going. 
That's what they would have told them. The Jews were coming in and telling them, hey, it's great that you started with Jesus. You need Jesus. But you also need circumcision. And you also need, you need to observe dietary laws. Don't eat that bacon. Y'all, I couldn't have made it. I love bacon. But you, you got to follow the dietary laws. and do, you, you got to eat the right foods and not eat the wrong foods. And, and by the way, you also you have to make sure that you attend uh, tabernacle or you attend temple every week. And then you also have to observe the festivals and the holidays and the new moons, and, right? And you got to honor the Sabbath and don't you dare, right? They had all these things like, it's good you started with Jesus, but to hold yourself in right relationship with God, you need all of these things. That's what they would have said it looks like to be a good Christian and to hold yourself in right relationship with God. Y'all, even today, if you were to go around and ask any random Joe on the street, if you were to even ask other believers, hey, what does it look like to be a Christian? What is being a Christian all about? You're going to get a lot of different answers. You're going to get things like, well, it means to believe in Jesus. Does it? Yeah, that's, a, that's an okay answer. Being Christian means going to church. Well, do Christians go to church? Okay, yeah, sure, why not? That's, that's not an right answer. Being Christian means, means loving others. Being Christian means living a moral life, like doing good deeds for others. If you ask people what it looks like to live the Christian life, these are some of the answers you're going to get. But what do all of these things, what do most of them have in common? They're the outward appearance, and they have nothing to do with the heart and the soul. You see, many of the answers you get to that question are going to be external appearance answers of the believer. And all of those things have some, some truth to them. None of them gets at the very core of what it means to, believe, or to be a Christian. You see, because at the core of the Christian life, the very essence, the very source, and the very fuel of the Christian life is union with Christ. You see, this is what Paul is saying all throughout Colossians chapter 2 and 3, and it's what he says right here in the start of verse 1. What's he say? He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. He's not really saying if, he's saying because. Because you have been raised with Christ. What does that mean? We've been raised with Christ means we have been united to our Savior in his resurrection. We are inseparable from the life of Jesus. He is the very source of the new Christian life. Y'all tracking with that one? That's the answer. Look at what Paul says in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. He says this. He says, Having been buried with him in baptism, we're united in his death, in which you were also raised with him through faith. We are united with him in life through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were once dead in your trespasses, once we were united in death with our sin. Well, Paul is saying we've been separated from that old life and we've been united with Christ and he is now the very source of life. That's the essence of the Christian life. You see, you were, united, you were united with Christ in his death and you're united with him in his life. Your very source of life as a believer, when we answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian? The only answer is we are united inextricably, inseparably with the life of Jesus. Alistair Begg 
says this. Alistair Begg said, trying to live a new lifestyle without first discovering the source of life is ultimately impossible. See, what James tells us, what James tells us in his epistle is that even the demons believe that Jesus is Lord. They know it. They acknowledge it. But what do they do? They shudder at the thought that Jesus is God. It scares the daylights out of them because they know the judgment that's coming. Belief in Christ is not the core of the Christian life. It is, it is what gets us into the Christian life, right? Placing your faith in Christ for forgiveness of your sin and that he is Lord. But the essence of the Christian life is union with that Lord. That you are submitted under him and you are united with him in a way that no one can ever separate you. That is the essence of the Christian life. You can try and live a moral life. You can, you can believe Jesus is God, but not be united with him in death and resurrection. You can try and live a moral life. You can try and live a biblical life. You can look at this book and try and live according to the moral code you might find in here. But ultimately, if you do not first have the very source of life united with your soul, what you are going to attempt to do will fail. You cannot sustain a moral life without being united inextricably from your Savior. So the Christian life starts this way, by being united with Christ, united with him. And so if your Christian life is all bound up in Christ, then what do we do? Our response should be to pursue him and pursue him and to pursue him and never stop. If you've placed your, your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've trusted in him for new life, and you're asking the question, now what? How do I meet the God standard? How do I now live rightly before God? All you need to do is pursue Jesus, whose life you're united to. Pursue Christ. That's, that's actually the next thing that Paul gets into uh, through verses 1 and 2. Christ, not our religious practice, holds us in right relationship to God. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor, to live more rightly before him, to, to earn his, his benevolence. You see, that's his mercy is that he just gives it to us. And so Christ holds us there. We don't earn it. Look back at, at verse 1 in chapter 3 here. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Let's go just that far. Y'all, you have two directions you can fix your attention. You have two directions you can fix your eyes and your mind and your attention. You can either fix your, your mind vertically or you can fix it horizontally. You can either think about the things that are above or you can think about the things that are of the world. Those are the only two directions. I want to start by walking through maybe three different ways we tend to fix our eyes on the, on the world. The first is this. Sometimes, and as believers, we're guilty of this too. Sometimes we fix our, our eyes on our trials, don't we? Our trials can feel so overwhelming and so all-consuming that it's tough to get our attention off of the struggles that we're facing. Anybody else amen in that one? Is that just me? Like, we can fix our eyes on our trials, but honestly, when we fix our eyes on our trials, all that does is cause us to question our standing with God, the standing that Christ purchased for us. 
You see, and it, it kind of looks or sounds like this. We experience our trials, right? And then all of a sudden we start to question, does God really love me? Y'all, because like, if God loved me, why, why am I walking through this storm? God, why are you allowing my finances to be drained? Why are the overdraft fees hitting the account? God, don't you love me? I thought you were the provider. Do you really love me if I'm walking through this? And it causes us to question our standing before God because our eyes are just fixed on our trials. Our minds and our attention are only on the trial. What about this one? God must be punishing me. Why else would these things feel like they're collapsing around me? Why else would I be feeling like I'm experiencing depression and anxiety? Why else would I be facing health complications? Why else would I be facing financial complications? Why else would I have problems in my relationships, in my marriage? God, are you punishing me? Because my eyes are only fixed on the trial. And we start to question, maybe God is just, he's punishing me. How about this one? I must not be a good enough Christian. Otherwise, God wouldn't let me walk through this valley I am in. I'll ever feel like that way. I just don't meet the God standard. Because our eyes are so fixed on the pain and the suffering. Because it's real, right? The trials we walk through actually hurt. They actually cause us mental and physical and emotional strain. They are real to us. And they pull our attention from the vertical to the horizontal. And all of a sudden, now we question our standing with God. But who purchased your standing with God? Was it you? It was Christ. He purchased your standing with God. So we don't have to question our standing with God because Christ demonstrated through the most loving act the world has ever seen that our standing with God is now righteousness because of what he has done, not because of something I need to do to be a better Christian, to meet a certain standard. We face trials. There's a, a book that I will walk guys through when they're struggling with um, addictions. And in that book, the author says at the very beginning, I'm actually not going to talk much about addiction in my book. Because when you focus on your addiction, the only thing you ever think about is your addiction. And that drives you deeper into your addiction. Actually, what I'm going to talk about is the grace of God and the glory of Christ. Because when we fix our eyes on the strength of God, which is Christ Jesus, now we find the power to overcome our trials and our addictions. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What about this one? Sometimes we're guilty of fixing our attention on our, our religious practices, aren't we? Sometimes we think, man, I just need to live with the right stuff. I need to do the right things. I need to, how about this? Like, we think things like, my morality holds me in right relationship to God. I just got to live a good life. I got to give a little bit to the church. I got to give a little bit to the homeless shelter. I got I to go serve at the soup kitchen once in a while. I got I to gotta treat my kids right, and, and I got to not yell at my wife. And I, if I do all these things, like, God's going to be pleased with me more so than he could be at any other time. Like, I'm going to earn God's favor. Sometimes implicitly, even if we don't believe that overtly, sometimes it rests right back here on the back burner of our brains, Right? Like, man, I've got to do more to earn God's favor. We think things like, man, I go to church every week, so I'm good with God. I have a, I have a friend, I haven't talked to him in uh, a number of years now, but 
um, I used to work with him, and he uh, attends a Catholic church. He is not himself Catholic, um, but he attends the Catholic church, and he said, he said to me once, Brad, I love the Catholic church. You know why? Because it's 45 minutes, door back to street, and now I'm clean, and I can do whatever I want again. So I get clean once a week, man, and I'm just good. I'm just good. He, man, my going to church earns me God's favor is what he's saying. And I'm in right standing with God. I can do whatever I want during the week because I've earned God's favor, and I just got to go get clean. And it's just 45 minutes to go get clean. That's easy. And we think, man, my, my religious practice holds me in right relationship to God. I pray most mornings. Man, so I'm good. God, I pray, and so I must be right with you because I'm doing this prayer thing. God, I fasted that one time like six years ago, and I fasted for like, uh, it was like 40 minutes. That was the longest lunch break ever, God, so I must be all right because I fasted, right? Uh, but think about this. Fixing our attention on our religious practices, it exposes us to spiritual weakness because we've taken our eyes off the one who really has the power to hold us fast to God. Think about what Paul says in Colossians 2.23. He says this, Your religious practices, that's my paraphrase entry, have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. Paul says, when you do these religious practices, it looks like you're doing the right Christian godly thing because you're doing something tangible that's outward, that's visible. It looks like the right thing to do is what Paul says. But listen to what he says. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Nothing that you can tangibly do, no religious practice actually separates you from your sin. What does that? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and your faith placed on him and your union with Christ. That separates you from your sin. So when you fix your eyes on your, on your religious practices and you take them off of Jesus, you are exposed to spiritual weakness and sin. How about this? Fixing your attention on worldly gain. Boy, that's popular, isn't it? Y'all want to know why the prosperity gospel is so influential in so many people's lives? It's because the prosperity gospel speaks to the part of my brain that says, I want immediate satisfaction right now in this life. And if I do the right thing for God, God is just going to heap financial blessing. He's going to give me that new Corvette. He's going to give me that Dodge Viper. Right? Like, it speaks to this thing that just wants what the world has to offer. And so the prosperity gospel goes so far. And sometimes, y'all, like, it's like, man, God, don't you, you want me to be happy and satisfied, right? Like, God, don't you want that for me? And the prosperity gospel speaks to that. That's why it's so influential. But y'all, it is so much harder to take our minds off of worldly gain and fix them on the heavenly gain. The reward and the treasures that we have to be patient for, isn't it? Because it's not immediately satisfying to my flesh. And think about this. When you fix your eyes on worldly gain, it causes you to lose sight of Christ. Scripture's clear, you cannot love money and love God at the same time. We lose sight of Christ. So what's, 
What's the other option? Those are three worldly gaze, worldly attention fixes. Paul says, set your minds on the things above. Here it is, fixing your attention on Christ, who is the strength of God, is what holds you in right relationship to God. You want to live the good Christian life? You want to know what the essence of being a Christian is? It is fixing your minds on Jesus, who is the strength of God. Look back at the text. Look what he says here. Set your minds, this is verse 2, on things above, not the things that are on earth. Look back at verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Where does it say Christ is seated? At the, the right hand of God. That is not a positional statement. It is not like Jesus ascended to heaven and plopped down in the throne right next to God. Hey, Dad. That's not what this means. It's not a statement of position where geographically Jesus is in relation to God the Father. That statement right there, if you track the term right hand all throughout Scripture, it's actually a figure of speech. And it doesn't mean position next to somebody The right hand is viewed as somebody's power, as somebody's strength. So what Paul is saying here, set your minds on the strength of God. Christ, the mighty strength of God. You see, Jesus is the strength of God to save sinners. Fix your minds on him. Jesus is the strength of God that will judge the wicked. Fix your minds on him. Jesus is the strength of God that holds sinners in right relationship to the heavenly Father. So fix your minds on him. Jesus is the strength of God to punish sin. He's the strength of God to judge the world. He's the strength of God to uphold those who are inextricably united to him. Jesus looks at the Father and says, Father, they're united to me and I am your strength. I will hold them fast. Paul says, fix your attention on the one who is the very strength of God. He's the one that will sustain you in this life. He's the one that will hold you fast. He's the one that will keep you in right relationship with God. So set your minds there. Worldly solutions. Paul is clear. Do nothing to kill the flesh. Nothing to stop our sin. But in Christ, sin is put to shame, and the power of sin is broken in the life of the believer. You see, we are made more like Christ only when we fix our minds and our hearts and our attention and our wills on Him, the strength of God. So what does it mean? What does it mean to fix your mind, to set your mind on Jesus? What does that mean? How do we do it, right? Like, that sounds good. It's a nice little phrase, but how do we do it? What are we actually doing? Let me give you an example. Maybe some of y'all can relate. Um, Jen and I uh, learned reasonably early on in parenthood that if we're going to do something with our kids, I'm going to bring Disneyland into the mix. Like, we went to California a couple of years ago, and we said, if we're going to be in California, we're going to Disneyland because Disneyland's better than Disney World anyway. And everybody says amen. (laughs) So we're like, we're going to go to Disneyland. So we knew six months in advance we were going to Disneyland. We make the mistake of telling our children six months ahead of time, guys, we're going to go to Disneyland. I know, y'all are like, you guys are fools. (laughs) What happens? Every six minutes they're coming up. 
Is it Disneyland Day? Is it is tomorrow Disneyland Day? Is tomorrow Disneyland Day? Every day, 24-7, 16 times a day, they're like, we're going to Disneyland. Are we going to Disneyland today? And when it doesn't happen, what happens then? The meltdown comes because I haven't been to Disneyland. and we're, So now we tell them like six minutes before we get into the car, hey, we're headed somewhere. <laughs> they are wholly fixed. Their minds can think of nothing else other than going to Disneyland. They wake up thinking about Disneyland. They're sitting at breakfast eating their Cheerios thinking about Disneyland. They're singing songs about Disneyland. Y'all, when we go to the gas station, the gas station attendant knows we're going to Disneyland. I'm like, dude, he now knows the house is going to be vacant. Thanks a lot. Like, everybody knows we're headed to Disneyland because their minds are fixed on Disneyland. What does it look like to set your minds on the strength of God? It means to always and often and forever be thinking about your Savior, setting your mind to Him. Not just reading this book because it's the right religious practice to do, but because I want to know more about my Savior and who He is. Paul's saying, fix your eyes on Christ who is the strength of God, and he's going to hold you fast. Be so consumed with Christ that all of your affections, all of your thoughts, all of your actions, all of your attitudes, all of your behaviors, all, he, exude him in every part of your life. You see, if your minds are fixed on Christ, you don't have to work up the muster to go tell somebody about Jesus. It's just going to happen because your mind is so set on him that he is naturally going to come out in your conversations and in your interactions with others because my mind is set on him. See, when you were united with Christ and his death, you died to the practices of this world. You are free from rote, dead religion. And you were united into a relationship with your Savior. Y'all, you died to the pursuits of this world. You died to the love of self. You died to the love of wealth. You died to the love of worldly gain. And your life is now bound up in His. So if you, if you are in pursuit of Christ, if you are setting your, li- your minds on Him and fixing your attention on Him, then you're going to look and live more like your Savior. You want to know how to live rightly before God? It's not about the practices you do. It's about pursuing your Savior to look and live more like Him, and then naturally you are going to do what God has as the standard in mind for you to do. Don't fix your mind on the practice. Fix your mind on the one who changes and upends your life when you're united and bound to Him. All you got to do is fix your eyes on Jesus and let his life impact your new life. See, he's going to hold you in right relationship to God. And there's no more, what do I do, God? I can't make the standard. Jesus made the standard. So now I just pursue him. Last thing Paul says here. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. And one day you will be glorified with Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Look back at the text. Verse 3 says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
Paul is pretty clear throughout Colossians and in most of his writing that the world does not understand the Christ-centered way of the believer. That's why people that still were of the world were trying to convince these Colossian believers, you're not doing it right. They were bringing worldly practice into a Christ-centered relationship, and the two just do not mix. Y'all, the world doesn't understand it. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1.23? He says this, But we preach Christ and Him crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. Let's make it like this. Christ who is our life. We don't just preach Christ crucified, we live Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews. What do you mean? You don't have to go to church like eight times a week. It's not morning service, night service, afternoon service, and then Tuesday study group and Wednesday adult group. You don't have to do church eight times a week. It doesn't make sense to the worldly who are focused on religious practice because it's all about relationship and the union that we have with Jesus. The world doesn't understand your spiritual life because they don't see it. That's what he says right here. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Your new life that you now have is united with your Savior who is in heaven preparing your eternal home for you right now. So they don't see it and they don't understand it. And so when our eyes are fixed on Christ, our priorities change. We, we no longer are concerned primarily with our, with our happiness, but we're more concerned with our holiness and our growth in Christ. And that is madness to this world. You're not in pursuit of your happiness Y'all, like right now in our culture, in our context, happiness is the ultimate goal and it is the pinnacle of human experience to this world. Happiness is the God of this world. My pursuit of personal, unbridled happiness should never be impinged. Don't you dare step on my happiness. That's what the world's in pursuit of right now. The the happiness, this unbridled personal happiness is at the root of the sexual revolution taking place in our culture that says, you know what, I just should be happy. And if the way I look, the way I feel, the way I talk, if that doesn't match what I feel like is going to make me happy, then I'm going to change everything else about me just so I can be happy because I'm going to pursue happiness. It's at the root of that. Personal unbridled happiness is at the root of the pursuit of personal truth. How dare you step on me with your empirical truth? I'm going to live my truth. I'm just going to live what's true to me. You can't tell me, I get, just, I get to live me and you live you and we'll all just be happy, but you can't bring your truth to me. And honestly, if my truth, if at some point it confronts my happiness, well, I'm just going to change my truth. My truth can change, right? Like, I I can change what's true. So personal happiness is at the core of what is happening in our world today. Personal happiness is the altar of worship for our world. So when we come along and we say, I'm not so concerned about my happiness, I'm concerned about my holiness, so I'm going to pursue Jesus, it makes no sense. And the world's going to try and convince you, cool, you can start with Jesus, but man, go for happiness. Because happiness is the key. They're going to try and convince you you've got it backwards and wrong. And they're going to say, try something else out. Add something to it because there's more. The religious and spiritual person, they're not going to understand your spiritual life because they don't understand Christ. 
the religious elitist of our day. They're not going to understand it because they're consumed with their, their personal piety. They're consumed with their religious practice and their good moral conduct, thinking that's what's going to hold me to Jesus. Like, what do you mean? You put on ACDC in the car. Do you even love Jesus? They're driving the car on the highway to hell. <laughs> like, they don't understand because it's my piety, man. I got I, I to gotta do this and listen to the right music and not to the wrong music and, and do this right thing and not do that wrong thing. And I got to live the conduct and do the thing because the thing holds me in relationship with Jesus. It doesn't. They're so focused on religious practice that they lose sight of Christ, and they won't understand it when you come along with freedom in Jesus to listen to a little bit of ACDC. I'm not saying you have it. I don't know why I have ACDC fixed here, but it just came to mind. But you guys get what I'm saying? And they're going to try and convince you. You've got to do the religious practice. That's what's going to hold you to Jesus. You've got to do the religious practice. That's what's going to draw you near to God. It's not and you come along and say, man, I'm just in pursuit of my Savior in heaven. I'm learning more and more about him every day in the Word, and I'm just trying to live and be like him. It doesn't make sense. But they're going to try and upend your relationship with God by fixing your eyes on your, their religious practice. Paul's clear. Our lives are hidden with Christ. But one day, our lives are going to be revealed. That's what he says in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and you're going to appear with him in glory. One day, Scripture's clear, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, everybody will recognize the divine authority and kingship of Jesus. And they're going to come and they're going to be, you were right. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's King Jesus, not my practice. It's King Jesus, not my happiness. And one day, Scripture's clear. You're going to be glorified with Jesus. And the day He takes you home to live with Him for eternity and worship Him. And that's where you will experience your personal and unbridled happiness, which will be part and parcel of your holiness. Because you just get to live with your Savior. And we get to look forward to that day when we're no longer pestered by the world to change, when we're no longer pestered by the world to give up this silly Jesus thing. And we just get to live in personal and unending joy with our Savior as we're glorified with Him. And why? Why fix your minds on Christ? Why do it? Why set your sights so clearly on Him? I'm going to end right where I began because Christ holds you in right relationship to God. Therefore, pursue Jesus and not your religious practice. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on. Y'all, I get it. Just like being a parent, living rightly before God sometimes seems so hard, doesn't it? It seems difficult, and I constantly feel like a mess up. But all we got to do is fix our minds and our hearts on Jesus. We don't have to have that constant nagging feeling that we're not meeting God's standard. We don't have to have that constant ne negative nagging feeling that we're not doing enough, that we're, we're not religious enough. Set your sights on Jesus is what Paul says. Release yourself from the bondage of religious practice. 
Stand steadfast against the persuasive voice of the world and instead fix your eyes on Christ. That's what Paul is calling us to. If you do, if you determine to just set your mind on Jesus and focus all of your attention on him, I promise you that you're going to grow to look more and love more and act more and talk more and think more like your Savior. It's just what God's called us to do. Live in relationship with him. He'll take care of the rest. Jesus is the strength of God. He'll hold you fast. And he's faithful and powerful enough to do it. Let's pray for just a moment and then we're going to worship one more time.